0: Afternoon edition of the show here, we're going live to Queen's Park where we check in with Dr. David Williams, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province.
1: Uh, we have 104 outbreaks that have been reported in long-term care and uh, with the numbers that have in reported total there of 163 up till now. And so those 104 outbreaks, some are resolving, some are being investigated. And as I said before, we have set the bar low, so they're calling outbreaks as soon as they have one person symptomatic. And that starts the whole outbreak management process moving into high gear to assess, rule in, rule out as quick as possible with a lot of extra testing being undertaken in that regard our number of health care workers the cumulative total which is 980 which is the long total now and we're trying to work at how to get our health care worker numbers a bit more segmented on that that's an accumulative number so that's that up to date we have in our hospital now um, 12 increase of 807 uh, patients currently in the hospital that's an increase of 12 our ones in icu have decreased uh, by 6 to 248 uh, but the ones in the icu on a ventilator increased by 12 and i said before often the ICU the ones going on and off can vary quite quickly as the day goes on so I would say these numbers are more of a plateauing effect in the ICU rather than a distinct drop and what may be encouraging I wouldn't make too many assumptions on that at this time. But the main thing is, as compared to our modeling data, it is not going up and doubling every few days. Um, <clears throat> so in a laboratory testing, as we said, we uh, we now have done 128,093 tests, and we have currently 4,323 under investigation. Now, that may seem like a backlog, but that was in the past, when we had it in one lab in PHOL. This is in all the labs, which basically is how many in the queue for being processed that day. So we don't call that a backlog. We call the one that have been queued up ready to go so in the last 24 hours we have completed over 9,000 tests which means we did reach the mark of the 8,000 that we and the premier had promised to get to by today or yesterday so we did that because these are the tests were done yesterday so <clears throat> back to the 514 and as I noted yesterday when we looked at that we were seeing that since at the end of the long weekend, we start seeing more and more of the cases being related to long-term care, more and more tests being done in long-term care, and because we'd already started ramping up with our decreased criteria for testing, our testing in and around wider cases that even asymptomatic patients or residents around the case would be tested, and, and staff as well, even if they were asymptomatic. So that number has been increasing. So of that 541, uh, 271 were related to long-term care care that means there was um, two hundred and forty three in the community side, so this is the first time we 've seen more in the long term care than in the community side in that that 's more of an artifact of the testing and what we 're doing in that number, but also <clears throat> the fact that we 're continuing to see um, the use on the community side dropping our travel related ones are pretty well gone Uh, with the social distancing the physical distancing is making an impact with bending the curve and I said we're hoping to hear from our modelers on a report how are we doing how have we done and are we going to continue to make direction that way and if we are and doing that how are we going to look at saying if we're going to ease off some of our public health measures what would we when would we and how would we Dial it back, if you may, to get to that number at that time. So, I think the encouraging part is that there's less, uh, we're down under the 300 level on the community side, the other side is on the long-term care, we're really ramped up the amount of testing and we know that some of our MOHs, our Medical Officer of Health and local public health units, uh, were asked to undertake to do some of their institutions on a full scale of doing all the residents and all the staff uh, from a spot check, or like a, a spotlight to say at this one time, what did it look like? and. Is the uh, is the demographics and layout of cases as we anticipated or different? And we should do it in different regions because the province is not being impacted equally throughout the whole um, area homogene genetically, but it is variable. And so, if we pick a sample in areas where it's very little activity, we might get a false conclusion that things are not very important or very small and it's not a big issue. So we need a wide range of surveillance data to do that. And now that we have the capacity, we can undertake that task because we're not talking about an inconsequential amount of tests. We're talking about quite a few tests to undertake to even do that survey and still do our outbreak management and still do our priority groups and the other ones we need to deal with including our healthcare workers our first nation indigenous populations as well as our other conjugal settings where there's outbreaks and cases there uh, in that regard so we still have to deliver on all those others while we undertake to do these enhanced investigations at this time so um, so we have the data we have the information there and with that i'm going to open up for questions
2: Okay, we'll move to the first caller,
3: please. Which will be Kenyon Wallace at Toronto Star.
4: Good afternoon, Dr. Williams. Um, I am uh, just wondering, uh, in terms of the emergency order uh, that was enacted uh, yesterday to prevent personal support workers and others from moving between different long-term care facilities, why are we enacting that um, or putting it into effect, I should say, on april the 22nd rather than now epidemiologists i've spoken to have said that if we really want to stop the chains of transmission between long-term care facilities we should be doing this as soon as possible and not in a week so where does the logic come for for doing this on, on april the 22nd right
1: So um, I think I was asked this question yesterday. So again, let's see if I can say exactly the same. Um, When we started off in this process, one of my recommendations originally was that we uh, try to decrease the amount of movement of these part-time people between the various institutions. And because we had experienced some problems with that in SARS and also in um, the... uh, Pandemic or the influenza back in a number of years ago. So that recommendation we carried forward guidance documents and, and asked that people who are in multiple sites would notify their employer and they would then, if there was an outbreak in their institution, the one they're in and they're isolated, they'd have to uh, cease from working in all the other sites if they're in more than one or two sites in that regard. And so we continue to say that is our direction. During that time, uh, there was a number of steps taken to look at all the reasons and methods to get to that. And the only venue that uh, the ministry and the cabinet could come to was using an emergency order because of the various aspects related to labor law and various uh, agreements and aspects therein that makes it uh, necessary to do that and to, and to look at all those aspects in there. Once they have got the order in place, then to implement that order, one has to go through a number of steps. Because if you just uh, just flip it quickly, you may end up losing a half or a third of the staff in institution, and then you end up with residents not getting any care. So one wants to do it by bringing in, as they've noted and the minister's noted, with some other staff resources, either from the healthcare care sector or from our volunteer group or from students to come in at that time to make sure that in the outbreak management, in the case of this implementation, implementation, implementation of this order, one does not decrease the workforce and compromise the outbreak response or the ongoing necessary care of these residents uh, as we have uh, seen in some other settings that was um, in our minds not at all acceptable. So while I understand there seems to be a delay, I would say to get to that point to do it carefully so you don't uh, cause disruption and loss of care for these these elderly and frail individuals. Follow-up?
4: Uh, yes, and in terms of the, the daily testing numbers that we, we get uh, shown every morning around 10.30, uh, as of yesterday, the province began to present those testing numbers as samples tested rather than patients tested. And my question is, what was the uh, thinking behind uh, that change and how does that then help us if for up till now we've been looking at the number of patients tested Whereas a single patient could get, like you say, two or three tests, um, by presenting it as samples, doesn't that prevent us from knowing how many people were actually tested?
1: Right. And all along in the past, before we went over to the system, we had reported that we did so many uh, individuals were uh, tested. But we said also that they said, well, how come uh, the public health laboratory only did this many? And said, so, well, they actually did more tests, but they had to do multiple samples on people admitted to uh, hospital Uh, A person may get tested in the emergency department, then they get in the ICU. They may do three or four samples. That's just part of the protocol. Those tests still have to be done. And because the question was, well, how come you're not doing more and more tests? What's wrong? Why can't you keep up with the rest of the country? And that kind of thing there. So the a lot of the questions say you have to increase the number of tests you're doing. So as a result, we have this system now where you can say, here's how many tests we are now putting through our enhanced laboratory system. 9,000 is the premier promise to get up to 8,000 yesterday and going up to 13,000 in the future. So the point you're raising is how does that get translated into patient data and that's where we have our uh, information, public health information system integrated and we have to then take those data, make sure they're matched properly because you may get some people double or triple counted and then you have to link them into what their exposure issue is and that and do all that investigation and then enter the comprehensive data into the IFAS system and that is not as rapidly available as the sample data which is of course what a number of people from the media were asking for. So <clears throat> um, we're going to try and do those things both ways but for uh, our purposes one tells you how does the system, the enhanced laboratory system, how is its performance doing? That's the data we are getting now. And then from the epidemiological data, how does the uh, IFAS data match with that, knowing it's going to be um, not the same number because there may be people multiple counted and you have to make sure you clean the data up in that regard and enter it accurately and that does take time and period to do so and therefore it won't be as up-to-date as the amount of samples done.
3: Next question. From Christopher Herhart at CP24.
4: Good afternoon Dr. Williams. I've been speaking with a person in Halton region who's been waiting for the result of her COVID-19 test for 20 days. She's been told not only to keep waiting but that there are plenty of others who have waited just as long. Is this acceptable and how does a wait this long impact contact tracing and data collection efforts at your level?
1: Mm -hmm. Well we've had others that we were um, told about and when we check back on it uh, first of all it's not acceptable. Um, We are reporting to turn the test results around in 48 hours and the aspect is when the sample goes into a now not just one lab but number labs, each one of those labs are required to do two things. One, if it's a positive, report it to the local health department. If it's negative, they don't tell the health department. They report it to the physician who requested the test (coughs) or the assessment centre or the doctor who's in the assessment centre that day who requested the test then when you send the results back, it goes back to that doctor and that doctor is not there that day or is on quarantine for 14 days, it may sit in their file. So we have to address these system issues to say, so what happened with the communication here and how come it wasn't handled better? So in the busyness and all these different sites, we had some others that they said, well, we went and we didn't get it. and They said, well, we checked back and actually you went to the other site and went to this one. And so there's some confusion on where the site was taken. So... I'm not trying to make excuses. I would say 20 days is way too long. Even uh, 10 days, uh, seven days is too long. And um, we need to address uh, those system problems if there is a lack of communication. As you get more labs on board, more assessment sites on board, and more sites and physicians and other centers on board, there is sometimes miscues on communication and the data sharing. Uh, So it's not acceptable. And it's something we have to be alerted to, so thank you for making us aware of that, and we'll continue to try to address those. Um, Unfortunately, so far, they're not the common part, but it doesn't mean they're acceptable.
4: Follow-up? On Tuesday, uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott said, quote, only recently that we learned you can be asymptomatic and still transmit the virus, end quote. When exactly did the concept of asymptomatic transmission become accepted by your command table? And why has it taken so long for Ontario to accept this concept when it has been documented in studies written in English in several, several peer jurisdictions such as South Korea, Iceland, Italy, and Taiwan?
1: So the question is that we've been bringing back to our Federal Provincial Territorial Committee on that and reviewing the data. And what you have to understand is that when they're saying they will find people who are asymptomatic... Presymptomatic, symptomatic symptomatic that's a fancy term, uh, that when they're testing someone with a test, the so-called polymerized chain reaction test, it picks up fragments of the RNA. That doesn't mean that they're actually live virus or not. It doesn't mean that they're actually transmitting or not. And it doesn't mean they've had a so-called viremia or an infection or not. That's one of the limitations of the testing. When it's very sensitive, it can pick that up for a long period of time. So the question is, when we found that when they did a study, the ones that said they had asymptomatic transmission, they found asymptomatic people were positive. When they interviewed the people, they said, 75% said, well, okay, in the last 14 days, I, I guess there was a couple of days I did feel off now that you mention it. So what is asymptomatic and what do people recall? It's hard to remember what it was the last two, three days, let alone 10 days ago. So we asked that question. And if you do find it, if it's a dead virus, are you actually transmitting? And that actual thing of doing viral cultures lifetime, they're not doing that because they can't right at the moment. And so we're continuing to be informed by that ongoing investigative science to say, what is it? Just because you find it, does that mean the person's transmitting or not? Because the test tells you one thing. But the transmissibility is another thing. So I'm not trying to make the science sound confusing. It is evolving because we didn't have this organism before the end of December, early January. So the science has evolved very rapidly. And we want to keep being informed by the science with more investigations, including serology and other new tests coming forward. And hopefully getting a sense of some live viral testing in that regard. So uh, right now, our position with the federal provincial territorial is that because people's history taking, you have to assume that some can be asymptomatic and still have a positive PCR test in there. That doesn't say they're automatically transmitting, but the potential for transmitting is definitely there. So we're being extra cautious and saying, let's assume they might be and go back to that. That's only been in about a week ago, about uh, nine days ago, when we came to that conclusion at the FPT table
3: question from cynthia mulligan at city news hello doctor in looking at the hospitalizations uh, i'm curious so today we have 807 people in hospital how many of those 807 come from long-term care or are the majority of long-term care patients staying in long-term care so are our hospitalization numbers actually lower than, than is actually reflective of the people that need medical care.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. <clears throat> and we're trying to ascertain how many patients are being transferred on a basis, regular basis from long-term care over to the hospital in that regard. Um, we haven't segmented that data out. Our information is not a lot of them are doing that in there because, remember, a lot of these people are in, um, in stage. But we're trying to ascertain if someone has... Uh, A COVID-19 infection and has an acute, um, let's say, deterioration in their situation and they don't already have some life plan action in place that's personalized and what the family has agreed to, then um, the physician who looks after that institution can authorize uh, the uh, transfer from the uh, long-term care facility to the acute care facility for a diagnostic workup because the long-term care facility doesn't have like the x-ray ct scans all the other ones that uh, they would endeavor or want to have to assess if this uh, individual's condition uh, was nothing to do with their reason they're in long-term care and was more of an acute exacerbation if you may and could be remediated if possible and it wasn't contravening uh the wishes of the family or the uh the patient in that regard so we're trying to assess and follow that and to see if there's a lot of transfers or not right now we haven't been uh made aware of a lot of transfers
3: follow up Uh, no that's okay i'll let somebody else have a chance thank you next question from rob Ferguson, toronto star please go ahead
4: Oh, hi, Doctor. I'm just wondering, um, earlier this week you were saying that uh, it looked like we might be hitting the peak this week, but I seem to notice a bit of a pullback from from you on that today, and also in particular from uh, Minister Elliott, who said they're still, I forget her quote, but she basically said we're still waiting to see which way this is going to break. So has, has anything changed in that regard?
1: Hmm. So <clears throat> I, I would say from the... Um, the um, different ones we watch about the with the modelers, they look at cases, they look at um, ICU admissions, and they look at deaths, and to see uh, if there any trends and directions. What we've seen is that the for the last number of days, the ICU admissions, the hospitalized, the ventilators, and the aspects there, and deaths. Um, Well, the deaths have accumulated and gone up, not as fast a pace as anticipated. The ICU and other ones have remained fairly level, which is what they said they might predict in this week of um, April or next week. And so as a sense that that has that plateaued. At the same time, when I said earlier at the start, when I was anticipating after the extra long weekend we just had, which was after the 14 days of the main travel inflow and our travel cases had really dropped off, I would assume that our cases would be dropping down from the 500s to the 400s to the 300s and so forth. I was a bit surprised when they stayed up in the mid to upper 400s, but then when I went back and did some further dissection of that data, I can see what's happened since the beginning of April, the, first, about the 8th and 9th of April on, we had already started our ramping up of getting our health units to do a lot more testing in long-term care facilities, so they are contributing more and more, whereas in the past they had a small contribution. So like the numbers that I said today, uh, the 514 cases in there, um, three uh, sorry, uh, 271 related to our outbreaks in the long-term care facilities. This is the first time that those have actually been more than the cuny cases which now have dropped down to 243. so in that sense i was saying i may be optimistic in that because in the past we had well over 400 community alone and we had peaked around 550, and very few from long-term care, back about two weeks ago. So maybe, in fact, after this long weekend, we are coming down, and I'm asking our data people and others to segment the data so we can get a correct amount to our modelers to say on the case counts also, have we are we coming down? Because you have to compare trends with apples to apples. So we've changed... The thing by adding a whole bunch of new things in with our enhanced testing and surveillance in the long term care homes. So, we got to make sure we separate it out so we're still comparing to what we have today with the same things we were comparing with uh, two weeks ago. Follow up? All
5: right, sorry, I had to take it off
4: the speaker Um and, and I'm wondering um, at this point, um
0: that was Dr. David Williams, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province of Ontario, giving an update on uh, today's stats, if you will. Uh, quick recap, some, uh, some of the data that was d- discussed before we head into the news here. Uh, the province reported 514 new COVID-19 cases as of today and 38 more deaths, bringing the provincial total up to 8,961 cases, including 423 deaths and nearly 4,200 cases that have been resolved. Uh, So the growth in total cases is relatively low for about a week now, and Ontario health officials have said that the peak is expected at some point this week. And uh, the number of people in hospital with COVID-19 is up slightly to 807, and the number of people on ventilators also grew. There are fewer people in intensive care, which is good news. We are going to now take the 3.30 news with Andrew Graham. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980. I'm your host, Jess Brady. I hope your day is off to a good start. Well, you're more than into your day. So I hope that I should say that you have had a very nice day thus far and that your afternoon will continue in the same vein. Didn't have a chance to say that off the top of the show. We dove right into that news conference with Dr. David Williams. This week, we have had a chance to speak with pros up at Western on a number of subjects. And over the last several weeks, I've had, uh, you know, the absolute privilege of having a number of discussions about work that's happening uh, here in London on Western campus and with their partners. And it's always fascinating having these chats because I learned so much. And we learn about not only the things that they're studying, but just how great the work is that's being done. We're really privileged to live in a city with this type of uh, groundbreaking work and research that happens on the daily. Often we don't even realize it's going on. And my next guest is one of those individuals who it's an honor to speak with, Dr. Adrian Owen, neuroscientist and professor at the Brain and Mind Institute up at Western. He joins me on the line right now. Dr. Owen, thank you for being here.
6: Oh, thanks very much for having me.
0: It's uh, very interesting to learn about this latest study that you've been involved in at the uh, at the Owen Lab there at Western, and it has to do with concussions and how the subjects in this study uh, react to certain, I guess, impulses, if you will. Please explain a little bit about what this study was all about.
6: Well, there's a lot of controversy uh, out there about whether having a concussion leads to any sort of long-term cognitive or, or brain deficits. And we were interested in, in investigating this in the general population. So we launched a study um, where we asked members of the general population to report whether they'd had a concussion or not, and if so, how many they had, and then to conduct some of our, our online cognitive tests. And in fact, 20,000 people responded in the end. We had a very, very large group of people that told us whether they'd been concussed. They did the tests. And when we looked at the data... What we found is that for, for the most part, people didn't have long-term impairments. Their memory was generally intact, their reasoning ability, these sorts of things were generally intact. But there was one specific problem that people had with a test that we call uh, a test of inhibitory control. And really that's about our ability to, um, uh, to, to maintain our impulsiveness, To 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 not do things um, in an impulsive manner, if you like, Um, it it, it relates to having a lack of self control over some aspects of our life, and this uh, this was surprising uh, that people would report this or would show they had this deficit in some cases many years after concussion. So in the second part of the study, we said well. Why don't we go and look at a group of people that we know, uh, they may or may not have been concussed, but we do know that they regularly uh, sustain impacts to their head and therefore uh, impacts to their brain. And of course, uh, this would be our varsity footballers. So we, we tested the football team on exactly the same series of tests. And surprisingly, I think we found exactly the same result, and that is that for the most part, they were unimpaired. Many of their cognitive functions were completely fine. But on this one test of inhibitory control, they had the same impairment that people out in the general population that have had a concussion, uh, the same impairment that they had.
0: That is like remarkable, and it, it makes a lot of sense because when we hear about individuals, uh, mostly high-profile uh, members of the sports community, who have suffered, uh, you know, repeated concussions, and then later on in life, uh, we see that they they struggle with with certain things. Uh, obviously, uh, there are a lot of you know uh, terrible news stories about people who have tragically uh, had very uh, poor poor after effects from concussions, and uh, some of those impulse issues are, are some of the big headline makers
6: that 's exactly correct, yes, and this is one of the things that that motivated this study. you know You, you see those headlines, but of course they typically relate to one individual you know often it 's a high profile football player or a rugby player or somebody that people uh, you know people know of and th- the question for us was, well is that true of the general population, or is this just the occasional person uh, you know, here and there that makes the headline and it does look, like, look looks as though this is actually a, a more general problem that having a concussion a blow to the head um, you know, can lead to these long-term difficulties you know in, in self-control
0: Certainly yeah and I, I would imagine that having access to this knowledge now and, and seeing it as uh, such a prevalent thing within the general population like you've said uh, it, it would probably help people be more aware and to look out for these types of symptoms and to maybe help to police themselves a little bit better and, and maybe recognize some cues.
6: I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, One of the things that's been changing uh, over the last few years about our knowledge and understanding of brain function is that you know, with something like a concussion, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. Many people will say, well, you know, I didn't lose consciousness. I wasn't knocked out, so I, I haven't had a concussion. And I don't think that really matters. And I think people are gradually starting to realize this, that, that any blow to the head can lead to some sort of brain damage. I'm putting that in in scare quotes here but um, you know that that's essentially what we're talking about here some effect on your brain that could have long-term consequences and people need to be aware of this that you know whether or not you've actually been knocked out cold it probably doesn't matter
0: that's true and it's so uh so much like e- even covid19 I feel like everything comes back to it there's such a broad spectrum of symptoms uh that some people have reported that it's you just have to really look at it on the individual level and then assess it from there uh, because you're right you didn't necessarily have to be knocked out to have a concussion there you could have had you know dilated pupils or nausea or any other number of symptoms so it's it's very important to really look at it in that way and and uh, not not think in that very exclusive manner, as you were describing. Yeah,
6: that's right. And I mean, I think one of the things that I'm very happy about here is that we've actually got a a test for it. You mentioned earlier that, you know, we've all read stories about people, uh, you know, some of these tragic high profile cases that clearly show evidence of lack of inhibition, lack of judgment in their later life. And often they, they make judgment calls that in some cases lead to their deaths. And it's been very hard to pin that down. And what we now have is, is a test that we can actually do, actually over the Internet, it's an online test that people can take that will show us whether they have an impairment you know, in this particular type of inhibitory control, as we call it. And I think that's important that we're getting a little bit closer to understanding exactly what the problem is and how we can measure it. And, of course, if we know what the problem is and how we can measure it, that's the first step in being able to do something about it.
0: Absolutely. Like so many things in life, right? You have to acknowledge that there's an issue before you can go ahead and, and start to try and do something to fix it, right?
6: That's, that's correct. And you know, very often, and it's, I mean, it's the same in science as it is in real life, you know, very often we, we are driven by headlights. Um, and it's really important to try to understand these things because in many cases, you know, they, they do get overblown. And I think you know, a very good example is this study where um, you know, in 11 out of 12 tests, there were no impairments the varsity footballers were completely fine on many aspects of cognition so i mean on based on this data it wouldn't be true to say that having a concussion leads to sort of profound cognitive deficits in the long term i think it's equally important that people get that message too but that doesn't mean it's fine there's one thing uh, that people are likely to have impairments in and that thing is impulse control and that could be very important or even detrimental to their future lives.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, it's one of those things that uh, you would not want to overlook. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting just the way that this uh, presents itself. And, and I'm so grateful that you have had the chance to study this closely uh, and, and put the fantastic minds of your team and yourself on it. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to learn more about this, Dr. Owen. Thank you so much for your time today.
6: My pleasure, thanks. thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Take care. You too.
0: That's Dr. Adrian Owen, neuroscientist and also a professor at the Brain and Mind Institute at Western, he's world renowned. So it's a, a very, very great honor to have a chat with him and to talk about his research. And it makes a lot of sense, like we were saying. Um, the vast majority of individuals that were involved in this study reported no significant long-term effects But there was a group who had had concussions who did report issues with impulse control. And as Dr. Owen quite rightly said, that can lead to a whole host of very serious problems down the road. And uh, it's great that they have, you know, been able to hone in on this and talk more about it. So uh, again, kudos to Western and to the, the minds that are working there. As I said in the introduction, we've had a chance to speak with them a number of times about all the uh, fantastic work that's happening up there and research that they're doing on a number of fronts. So, and uh, Western obviously is no... Uh, no stranger to uh, work in concussions and, uh, you know, obviously the Brain and Mind Institute and also See the Line is very, uh, you know, involved with work that happens at Western and that program in concussion studies. So uh, great work all around. Congrats to the team on on finding out this information. We need to take a quick break for traffic and weather. When we come back, we're checking in with one of my colleagues here at 980 CFPL, Jacqueline LaBelle, about a story that we published this morning about a family here in London who went through an unimaginable tragedy, but have this token of a memory, and it's thanks to London police. So Jacqueline's going to give us all the details on this story coming up on The Afternoon Show on 980 CFPL. welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. my name is jess brady i'm your host before the break i told you that uh we were going to chat about a story that came to light just in the last 24 hours truly i found out about it late last night and then we started making some inquiries this morning within the news team to bring this story to you and it's hitting the london community I would say, uh, pretty hard. It's a story that no one wants to hear about because there are really tragic circumstances within it, but there are also moments of... I think, great pride for our London community and, uh, you know, London police who have been involved in this. And joining me on the line right now to explain a little bit further about this story is Jacqueline LaBelle. She is one of our great colleagues here at 980 CFPL. She's an anchor, a web writer, an editor, an all-around news dynamo. Jacqueline, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for that uh, generous intro.
0: (laughs) Well, it's true. I only speak the truth, Jacqueline. (laughs) I appreciate that. Well, and your work is, uh, you know, uh, uncomparable as it is on this on this story. You wrote up the uh, the web story for it. It's uh, one of those cases, like I said, that we the, the circumstances of it are heartbreaking because it involves uh, the passing of a very young Londoner, a little girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's a really remarkable story of how her family found uh, just a, a little token that they can hold on to. Explain to us how this all began.
3: So basically, it was Jillian um, Catholic. She was just four years old, and she died suddenly March 3rd. Obviously very tragic for her, her family, her parents, Rebecca and Stephen, and then she had uh, two young brothers as well. And a little over a month after her passing, there was, a, you know, I think a lot of people remember, there was big storms about a week ago, and it was during the thunderstorm. That the family noticed, I guess, like when the lightning went off, they saw in the window uh, fingerprints and like a face print of her that she, I guess she used to sort of press her face into the window. She also drew like a little smiley face. You know how people do, they yeah. get their hot breath on the window and draw a little smiley face. So then the family posted that to Facebook, those photos, you could, and you can see the imprint. And they asked if anybody knew of a way to preserve it. And that's when uh, a family friend, Kim Hunter, reached out to police. And according to Kim Hunter, when she reached out to police, they were there within hours to, to lift that print
0: so that the family could hold on to that. That is absolutely remarkable. When I was reading some of the circumstances of of this case, I I won't lie, I teared up. I think that you know, anytime there's a passing of uh, of a young child, it it hits us differently. And in our line of work, we we hear of a lot of tragic circumstances, but it's it's different when it involves a child. And uh, you know, knowing that there was this poignant moment for her family to discover this you know little memento of her, I mean, that's that's it. it just you know, tugs on your heartstrings.
3: Yeah, uh, it's, you're exactly right where it, you know, I mean, i I too like teared up a little bit just looking through some of the posts and, you know, it's, it is a tragedy, but at the same time, it is really a beautiful story of a way that the communities come together to remember her and the, as, as Kim said too, police just going above and beyond in order to, to make sure that the, that the family have this memento.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's I, And I never would have thought to do something like that. And and how wonderful that uh, officers were able to, you know, use their expertise to, uh, to to make this happen. I know that you have a, a statement from Constable Sandash about who we've talked to a couple of times here on the program. And she's uh, obviously a, a frequent voice on the station. Um, she issued a statement on behalf of uh, LPS saying, you know, the officer wants to remain anonymous, but um, used fingerprint powder to enhance the impressions on the window and then used tape to lift that impression and transfer it to a fingerprint card, which is called a latent print. And I'm, I'm obviously reading that from your story there, Jacqueline. But mm-hmm. I just, I thought how how perfect of a way to preserve this and, and keep that memory.
3: Yes. And Constable Bow mentioned as well too that, you know, the I, this story also kind of, It's a way to show how London police, uh, you know, they are members of the community. And uh, I think she said as well that, like, if this had happened to an officer, you know, this is
0: they're just doing what they would want um, others to to do for them. Certainly. Yeah, I know. It's it's just any mementos that you can hold on to from a loved one like that it's just anyone would want that no matter who the person was that passed but especially for someone so young like little Jillian uh, such a a young little girl only only four years old and uh, to have that little piece of her and to have it be displayed in that way it's one of those moments where you think oh wow just what are the chances to have noticed it at that time and Mm -hmm. uh, you know a lot of things came together in, in the right way to make this possible.
3: Yeah. And it's obviously, it goes without saying, but I think everybody too has, you know, their own examples within their own lives of things that they hold on to from a loved one that they've lost. So it it goes without saying that like this family will, will cherish this forever.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And to know that that uh the officers, you know, were able to to help in that. I know that uh Constable Bao, you know, mentioned that they were very pleased to be able to offer this service uh and and this little token of of you know compassion. Obviously it's it's it, like you said, this is something they will hold on to uh forever. And to know that, you know, the London community was able to be there in their time of need, that's that's important and a beautiful thing. Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I know you're working hard, uh, you know, getting out uh, lots of content for us here. But thank you for your work on this story and uh, in all other things. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Happy to, happy to be here. Soon. She's a news anchor. Reporter, editor, and uh, web extraordinaire writer as well. We're all wearing many hats these days at 980 CFPL, uh, but Jacqueline is certainly uh, a, a friend, not just a colleague. So it was a, a great to great to have a, a chance to chat with her about this story because it's certainly one that is um, you know hitting the community in a different way, and I think we're all obviously very raw. From everything COVID-19 related, all of the loss that's taken place and all of the hardships that people are enduring right now because of that. And this story, while tragic in the loss of little Jillian, also shows that great compassion that London is known for and ways that we can help each other. Even with what we might seem like a small gesture, it can have a massive impact in the way that this has And I think a lot of people will really gravitate towards this story and and feel that, you know? And of course, we here at at 980 CFPL obviously send all of our uh, best wishes and thoughts for healing and uh, peace to Jillian's family, and uh, we wish everyone the very, very best. We need to take a quick break for traffic and weather. We will be back on the afternoon show on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. During the last few weeks, we've had discussions about food banks, we've had discussions about virtual food drives. And now we're going to have a discussion about a virtual food drive that is actually turning out to benefit a food bank for pets. Yeah. This is really neat. I saw a statement released by the Humane Society London and Middlesex this morning, having to do with a big donation to the No Empty Bowls food bank. And first of all, I had no idea that there was such a thing as a food bank for uh, dogs and animals. I mean, it makes great sense that there would be one. And I'm so happy that that resources here in the community. And to learn a little bit more about it, but specifically this big donation that's happened, joining me on the line right now is Steve Ryall the Executive Director of the Humane Society London and Middlesex. Steve, thanks for taking some time this afternoon.
7: Oh, thanks for having the opportunity for us to speak and share the news.
0: Yeah, it's, and it's great news at that. Uh, tell us a little bit about how this all came about, because it had to do with a virtual food drive.
7: Yeah, so we started out with our virtual food drive for the shelter because obviously uh, our our shelves get depleted on a regular basis. Lots of uh, food is consumed every day by the dogs and cats and bunnies and rats and stuff. So uh, we put that out there and uh, had a reach out from Habitat for Humanity Heartland Ontario, which are basically neighbors of ours. They're just down the road from us on the Clark Side Road, uh, and they had a they had an opportunity to receive some skids of dog food and. And, uh, I think as many of our followers know, we only serve specific brands, uh, to the three brands that we serve to to help keep our animals, uh, healthy and consistent with their diets that keeps them, them in better shape. So unfortunately the skids of food that, uh, were being donated or that had access to, uh, didn't fit those. So we got talking and, and uh, we do work with a group called no empty bowls and, uh, uh, what they do is they go out into the community and, and service different uh, groups and areas, and you know some that may be a little less fortunate, and, and some maybe that don't even have a home. Uh, some of these animals. So, um, so we put it all a big plan together and uh, work together, and uh, we delivered just around I think it was 738 bags of dog food uh, over the last week to uh, various different groups that can distribute it from there.
0: That is fantastic. I can't even imagine how big a pile of bags that would make because that's that's a lot of dog food.
7: It is a lot of dog food. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, there's so many dogs that need it. You know, if I look at our shelter and we average around 200 and 215 animals a year, a daily basis, um, you know, when you're feeding that many hungry people, hungry mouths, food dissipates quickly. So uh, it is amazing. Um, And so we're glad just to do a, a little bit of our part to help spread that out.
0: Absolutely. Well, it it makes really good sense, like I was saying uh, earlier, to have such an organization because uh, people need assistance and often people have pets. And it's a heartbreaking prospect to have to uh, surrender an animal, I would imagine. And, you know, if you can, I guess, keep the animal with their person, that's kind of best for everybody.
7: Yeah, that's right. I think it's better for the animal always to stay with the homeowner and you know if you look at the different groups involved you know humane society that's always our goal first and foremost is to try to give solutions to to people to be able to keep their animals and stuff but you know the the real heroes in this are are the are the, the um no empty Bowls, the two people that, that go out and do this uh you know fly under the radar if you will on a daily basis distributing food all year round and we we do what we can to supply them with as much as possible And and it was really great that the uh, people from Habitat Humanity really came to the table with this as well. And and, uh, so, you know, it's numerous, numerous organizations now will have their stock, their coverage stocked uh, as much as possible.
0: That is fantastic news. I I, I love to hear stories like this where, uh, you know, obviously there's a a need all the time, but especially right now where people are struggling even more. uh, It's great that uh, people are stepping up to the plate to help out here.
7: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And our food play itself did uh, extremely well we received a lot of financial donations um, and also some physical donations that came through our wish list which we host on amazon and you know our shelves are back stocked up and our, and our, our staff is able to continue to do the good work they do so the community london and middlesex and, and and you know st thomas and oxford county really really came uh came to the plate and uh and and they always do when we do put out those asks so um, kudos to everybody in the community that uh, was able to help us in some way or another.
0: Absolutely. Warms my heart. Love to hear it and uh, to see the results. Steve, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and, and filling us in on all this good work. It's a it's a bomb for the soul, I feel like.
7: And that's so nice. And I and appreciate the opportunity for us to thank everybody that participated. So thank you to you guys.
0: Hey, no worries. Anytime. And I'm sure we'll we'll check back in with you to see how things are going and uh, we'll keep each other informed. OK,
7: we'll do. Thanks, Jess.
0: Thank you, Steve. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Steve Ryle, Executive Director of the Humane Society London and Middlesex. So, uh, two really great pieces of news there uh, to bring you. One that the uh, virtual food drive was a, a big success, as Steve said, they had uh, their shelves restocked and they had some physical donations and monetary donations as well. So people went onto uh, Amazon and picked up some items for the Humane Society that they needed on their wish list and had them dropped off. And also, like I said, the the cash money came in. So that the staff can go and buy those preferred brands of uh, animal food. And uh, as we have said before on this show, it's surprising to me actually that we've had, this is the second time I will have said this, but things can get a little messy if your pet is not on a uh, consistent diet. Yeah, so I'm going to leave it at that. Um, But that's that's a a concern. And then also this great news that No Empty Food Bowls uh, was able to take on like 700 bags of of dog food that uh, the Humane Society wasn't able to use but was donated uh, by Habitat for Humanity Heartland Ontario. And so now No Empty Food Bowls is really going to be able to stand by that name, which is fantastic. And uh, I'll just take a, a quick moment to note that the donated dog food is going to be distributed to the London Food Bank Elsa Craig Food Bank, Unity Project, St. Joe's Soup Kitchen, Ice Foundation Dog Rescue, London Salvation Army, Woodstock Salvation Army, Stratford Salvation Army, and the Caring Cupboard Food Bank in St. Thomas. So lots of organizations will be able to uh, make use of that and help out people and pets in our community. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. When we come back, we're checking in with Reggie Cicchini in Washington for the latest on U.S. President Trump and the WHO and who knows, whatever else is coming up in this evening statement that's being made. That's on your afternoon show on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. As always, it's a a busy news day, a busy news week, a busy news month. This month that has felt more like a couple of years perhaps we joke about it but it is true nonetheless one of the most turbulent i guess avenues of news that we follow is south of the border in the u.s and that's very true over the last 24 hours especially and there's likely more on the way in terms of uh interesting statements and news conferences of course yesterday u.s president donald trump Uh, held a a news conference and was uh, talking about the WHO, the World Health Organization, laying a lot of blame at the organization's feet for the progression of the COVID-19 pandemic. He even announced that he was holding back on the US's funding for the WHO. It's been a lot a lot of discussion over it. And someone who's been following this very closely is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent and producer. Reggie, thanks so much for taking some time this afternoon. I appreciate it. Good afternoon. So I guess tell me a little bit about what the fallout has been like since that announcement. I know, obviously, the WHO said that it was, uh, you know, uh, disappointed and uh, regrets the fact that this decision has been made to withhold funding. Uh, Where do we stand right now?
8: Well, look, the president says that he is going to uh, get, uh, you know, his administration or those close to the administration to open up, quote unquote, investigations into the World Health Organization for what he sees as an inadequate response on the agency's part to deal with uh, this COVID-19 crisis. The accusations, many of them baseless coming from the Trump administration, uh, say that they uh, were too open to it, taking the information uh, from China and just kind of using that and not really um, or at least dropping Dropping the ball on sounding alarms to the severity of this crisis. But it's worth noting that the World Health Organization relies on state member or member states' data and information. And if that's what China was giving them, they had no. Uh, other option, but to believe what China was giving them because that's all that they had. We now know, uh, that, you know, maybe China's information was a little bit skewed, a little bit different than, uh, what it was. But in the early days of this crisis, the World Health Organization went with it. But it's also worth noting President Trump also thanked China for their transparency. So there's some confusion over what the president's trying to do here.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely looks like he's, he's just trying to deflect, deflect and reset from, uh, you know, his own potential culpability in all of this and his administration's handling it uh, at the homeland level.
8: Absolutely. I mean, look, the United States as of today has somewhere between 31 and potentially 33,000 deaths and more than 650,000 confirmed cases. And the president is saying that the World Health Organization is at fault for the sheer number of cases that around the world. But it's worth remembering the United States right now has more than 30 percent of the world's uh, confirmed cases in the U.S. alone. Uh, and the death toll, uh, you know, is something along the lines of 30 uh, percent of the deaths as well. And there are questions being raised now, uh, you know, You know, the World Health Organization classified this as a public health emergency at the very end of January. The Trump administration put a China ban on travel from China in effect right afterwards, but then didn't start acting aggressively until March. And the question right now being raised is what did the Trump administration do during February outside of holding uh, Trump campaign rallies to actually uh, slow the spread of this virus around the U.S.?
0: Yeah, it becomes one of those situations where you can lament what has quote unquote happened to you. But at at some point, you have to move forward and decide how you are going to react to the circumstances. And I think that's what he is uh, obviously uh, purposefully uh, just ignoring at this point.
8: Yeah, and I mean, look, trying to cut the funding off for the World Health Organization, it puts President Trump in line with what he's done in the past with, uh, with uh, global organizations, including the Human Rights Council and the International Criminal Court. He's pulled America out of this. America now stands alone in this global effort to try and curb COVID-19. But also remembering here, the pre- uh, the United States makes up 15 percent of the World Health Organization's budget, and while it doesn't seem a lot, you know, it's it's 800 million dollars over two years for a you know several billion dollar budget. The money that the WHO brings in goes to developing and poor nations around the world who depend on this agency for data and research and medication, not just for COVID-19, but for numerous diseases around the country. So this puts an undue burden now on other countries to fill a gap to help developing nations be able to fight viruses.
0: It's true. And, you know, I, I've heard some criticisms uh, saying, sure, like, let's let's look at the response from the WHO. Sure, let's look at, uh, you know, other aspects of how it functions. But not right now, because that just seems like cutting off your nose to spite your face.
8: Yeah. And look, epidemiologists that we've been speaking to as well as kind of political experts in the field have said, sure, the World Health Organization has its problems. Nothing is perfect and it's an agency that has flaws to it. But not doing something right or doing something right now uh, is simply just going to create more problems and it's going to politicize a virus that needs to be dealt with from a health aspect. We've seen how the president deals with this virus. You know, we're waiting for him today to announce that he's going to try to reopen the country, despite the fact that health advisors are saying, Slow down. Don't do it too quickly. Otherwise, you'll end up with a possible second round of this pandemic. And if that's the case, you know, it's the same comments that were coming from the World Health Organization. The president will then need to find somebody else to blame because, again, it's all about deflecting the blame from your own shortcomings to always make it somebody else's issue.
0: Yeah, this is the thing with this this next announcement and, uh, you know, the conference call that uh, is said to have taken place earlier on today with uh, state representatives and uh, saying, oh, you'll run your own show and you'll be the ones kind of, you know, basing your own timeline for reopening. I think that's also leaving himself an avenue to blame others if, you know, certain states see problems. He can say, well, I told them they could do it when they wanted to.
8: Absolutely and we already heard the president say that if certain governors potentially 20 to 29 of them with democratic governors right now uh if certain states decide to go against what the president says he may try to target them uh you know if they're up for re-election this year it's a president playing a political game to ensure that blame can be put onto a governor but you know at the end of the day the president is really pushing to get these handful of states these eight or nine states to reopen their economies because he says that numbers are just low in those states the question that raises is are the numbers low because it's a low population? population and spread hasn't been wide or is it because testing hasn't been adequate in those states and the numbers are underreported and many scientists say that the latter is possible uh, in the U.S. right now with a number of silent outbreaks and there is a risk down the road if measures are eased too early we could be potentially looking at a second round of this virus sometime within the next 150 days.
0: Uh, well I'm keeping my fingers crossed that uh, the, the states are able to you know the ones that don't want to reopen too soon uh, are able to, you know, stand their ground and and try to prevent that second wave because it's the last thing any of us needs right now. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and your analysis of this situation, what's going on. We'll obviously follow along very closely later on this evening to see what's said. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Take care. That's Reggie Giacchini, Global News Washington correspondent and producer. We need to take a break for the 430 News with Andrew Graham. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. We've talked a little bit about fitness gear in the last little while. We've talked a lot about fitness in general, what you can do to stay active during this time, why you should stay active during this time. And earlier this week, we had a chat with uh, Source for Sports about some of the things that. Uh, Athletes, both young and old, are looking to purchase from them some more specialized equipment that you might see, uh, you know, teams or coaches buying for uh, training purposes. But now individuals are getting into that because they're trying to keep up their conditioning and and improve and things like that. But it's not just that specialized gear that's uh, very popular right now. Have you tried to find dumbbells online anywhere to see which stores might still have them in stock? Have you looked at options for treadmills or exercise bikes or anything like that? Yeah. Sometimes the options are limited these days because they're so popular right now. Uh, exercising outdoors can face challenges or you can face challenges as you try to do that because everyone's trying to stay physically distant. Sometimes that's tough. And also people who are used to going to the gym can't do that because those are closed right now. So what's a person to do? Well, you look online to try and find the equipment to bring it into your home someone who has a lot of experience uh, advising people on, you know, what equipment is best for them is Karen Alexander with California Spa and Fitness. Karen, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's it's a pleasure to talk to someone uh, who is, you know, an expert in this. Tell me, what are you seeing as uh, some of the most uh, popular requests right now for equipment?
2: Oh, that'll have to be dumbbells. I have had at least 200 calls a day just saying, hey, what do you have in stock? But uh, definitely it's pretty limited. Um, but, yeah, we have another shipment coming in by the end of this month. So, hey, that's that's great to hear. I'm glad to see that. So we'll definitely have some more dumbbells and free weights coming along. Um, but, yeah, it's it's definitely getting pretty limited with everyone trying to look for the same thing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no doubt. There's a lot of competition. There is a, a, an article that our colleagues at Global National did that uh, said probably quite rightly that it, dumbbells seem to be the new toilet paper that people, everyone's oh. after it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Which it's, I mean, it it makes sense because if people are missing their weight training uh, that they usually do at the gym, or even if they think, hey, you know what? I've not done this before. Let's take this opportunity to explore this. um, I can understand why people would be searching out those types of things.
2: Oh, definitely. It's a lot easier to be able to do certain exercises and have a variety of exercises by just using either dumbbells or a kettlebell, things like that, that are easy to, you know, move around and only maybe have a couple of
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those are going to be more pieces of, or pieces of equipment that are more affordable than, say, uh, you know, trying to invest in a Bowflex or something like that. It's a little more accessible.
2: Yeah, absolutely. With the large home gyms, like we absolutely do have them in stock. It's just, you know, people are looking for a little bit. uh Yeah, like what were you saying? Definitely the cost of it as well.
0: Yeah, and I know that I myself was just looking around online the other day just to see what the prices are like on some even some treadmills that are sized appropriately for, you know, a smaller living space. Um, Just because being outside, I like walking outside, but sometimes it's tough to you know feel uh, comfortable because you're not sure about physical distancing from people. And and that can be a little tough. Has there been interest in, in that sort of thing?
2: Well, exactly. Yeah, people are hoping to stay inside ultimately. Uh, So we do have great, great prices on our life fitness right now. So if anyone's looking for either a life fitness treadmill, elliptical, bikes, spin bikes, uh, we have lots in stock as of right now and offering even more uh, discounts as well than what's on our website. So definitely take a look and see what you find because we'll have some great prices for people.
0: Yeah it's one of those things that uh, you know it's it's great that there are, are options out there. Um, sometimes those pieces of equipment are a little bit hefty or, or bulky. Uh, do you know what the delivery or pickup options are, are like right now?
2: Well right now we're trying to work with customers and uh, ultimately what our main priority is is we try to have our uh, equipment put together beforehand and then it's left at your front door. Now, if you do need to borrow a dolly or anything like that, or if obviously there's certain circumstances for some people where they can't, you know, possibly move the item, well, then we'll definitely do what we can to help you out for sure as safe as possible.
0: Yeah, that's great. And it's awesome that, uh, you know, people can get in touch with you to obviously learn uh, more, I guess, specifics about what those individual uh, circumstances and options are. But uh, it's good to know that, uh, you know, California Spa and Fitness has a lot of options for people. So it's uh, it's good, because in this time, we all kind of have to figure out some new routines. And there are lots of options for everybody, it would seem.
2: Exactly. Ways to work together and is- Definitely more hope for some more dumbbells and free weights at the end of this month. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, Karen, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. And uh, thanks for trying to keep us all healthy as possible. Sounds
2: right. Thanks so much for having me again. You guys enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Thank you. You too, Karen. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Karen Alexander with California Spa and Fitness here in town. As she was saying, there's big demand for dumbbells and free weights. They have another shipment coming in at the end of the month. So uh, if you're interested in that, maybe get on the list, give them a call, put your name down for them. And uh, yes, they also have a bunch of other equipment for your for your home that you can purchase from them and get set up if you're looking for uh, something a little bit more Uh, I don't want to say intense, but uh, I I mean, a treadmill purchase is, yeah, more intense than like free weights. That's true. There's no way getting around that. It's true. But it is an option, you know, if that's something that you're looking for. So there you go. California Spa and Fitness. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. When we come back, we're talking about our locally owned and awesome businesses of the day. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to 980 CFPL's Afternoon Show. I'm your host, Jess Brady. It's that time of the show, isn't it, Matt?
9: Yes, it is.
0: It's time for the Businesses of the Day. Locally owned and awesome Businesses of the Day, brought to you by Ontario West Insurance Brokers. And we have a couple of great ones, don't we?
9: As always, I like to think.
0: That's right. I also feel that way. And... One of them is a tasty option, which uh, feels like. Uh, here we go. We're it's gonna do never
9: gonna stop.
0: I know. You know what? Let's do the tasty option first, sure, and then we'll have to move on and not think too much about all the tastiness with our second one, and that'll maybe that will save us a little bit.
9: I agree. I think that's a good call.
0: Okay. All right. We'll do our second business of the day first, and then we'll flip flop back. Okay. I think this is good. And but I'm gonna make you talk about it sure sure yeah okay here we go i will i will give you a drum roll if you like
9: please and thank you
0: here we go my subpar drum roll here it comes
9: (laughs) our first slash second business of the day is abe's subs in byron Ooh. Now, they're a uh, lovely little independent uh, independent store there. They sell fresh subs, fresh wraps. Everything is made uh, in-house. If you're in the Byron area, they're at 431 Bowler Road. Uh, they are offering safe and secure takeout, which is always what you want to hear from a, uh, f- a uh, food business in this time. And mm-hmm. uh, if you want to see just how good this stuff looks, you can check them out at their website, abesbyron.com, A-B-E-S, byron.com. Uh Oh, it looks good.
0: I don't doubt it. And it looks so good. They have a uh, breakfast and lunch menu as well, and a sub of the day. Mm -hmm. You can pre order your food by calling in ahead 226 663 8463. And then that way you don't have to even wait in a line at all. So that's also pretty cool.
9: Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and they they've got all different kinds of uh, subs. They have open face subs, classics, tortilla wraps, Greek pitas. Oh my Uh, gosh! They've got parmesan melted subs. They've got yeah. Get out of here. Yeah, the garlic chicken and Swiss that uh, I'm reading right now. Oh, it looks good.
0: I'm typing in their website right now because I also want to see it. They have garlic
9: parmesan potato wedges.
0: What (laughs) sounds so delicious? Oh my goodness. (laughs) This is, okay, I'm really glad we did this the way that we did this. Yep, I
9: 100% <laughs> agree. This is... Uh... Oh, it's just too dangerous. Now, their opening times are posted on their website. I'm not sure if that's affected by things going on. Uh, we have seen changes in that. But uh, according to their website, they are open Monday to Wednesday, uh, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Thursday mm-hmm. to Friday, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. And Saturdays, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, they do catering on Sundays. But again, I don't think that's active right now.
0: Yeah. And if you have any questions about it, I mean, you can always reach out to them and uh, check in and and ask some questions about whatever it is that you're interested in. You can also find them on the Insta, on the gram, at abes in byron altogether. a-b-e-s-i-n-b-y-r-o-n and uh yeah and i think today's sub of the day according to their website is a garlic roast turkey sub with a can of pop and a bag of chips that sounds delightful
9: that really does i i'm not gonna <laughs> lie i just opened up their instagram and um everything it's not i love mm-hmm. cheese and there's just cheese on everything
0: oh that's heaven <laughs>
9: it's it's so so good
0: <laughs> it's the way it should be
9: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: <laughs> i'm looking at this uh a philly cheesesteak or a crispy chicken caesar salad here and uh, yeah that's looking real real good mm-hmm. right now i'm mm-hmm. not gonna lie to you Ooh, look at this wrap and some beautiful cucumbers. Oh I'm just goodness. you know what?
9: I gotta hit the axe button on the Instagram. <laughs> I can't I can't do it any longer. It's too much.
0: It's too tempting. There's too much there. Mm-hmm. So, again, you can give them a call and uh, just see if you have any questions about um, if they're doing catering stuff, any of their other options. Again, just give them a shout at 226-663-8463. And uh, you can call ahead for your orders. And, again, they are in Byron. Abe's in Byron since 1984. Excellent. Yeah.
9: Now, Great. I think if we uh, I think if we move on to our next business, if this one gets your taste buds going, I'm concerned.
0: <laughs> well, here, you know what? Maybe this is a good thing that we've done it this way, because if you go to Abe's and you have some delicious food, mm-hmm. but you were too excited about it, so it got like on your clothes or something, this next business is here to help you. Think of it this way. If you're a messy eater, they've got you covered. That's because, a good call. Yeah. You know, talk about segues. Hey, yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> Nailed us. Um i kind of told everyone that i was doing it though so i think that probably makes it less smooth but it's okay we're getting there we made it work. Um, we made it work that's what it's all about <laughs> so our second locally owned and awesome business of the day is ask laundry and dry cleaning service and they wash they fold they deliver and you can find them on their website at asklaundry.ca. Their phone number is 519-200-8119 and they are here in London, of course. You can uh, check them out and uh, find out what the type of services you're looking for. They wash, fold, and repeat is a wash and fold service in London with a 48-hour free pickup and drop-off to a London address. They have three pay-as-you-go options available to help you stay home and avoid shared laundry facilities. That's a really good point. Plus, they're now offering a seniors discount, so you can check out asklaundry.ca for more information. And uh, yeah, that's a really good point, actually, that uh, laundromats are open uh, because they are listed it as an essential service, people have to clean their their clothes and things. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if that's a concern for you, if you're worried about having to access, uh, you know, a laundry service, um, then you know you can certainly check out, ask, and ask them any questions that you might have. So,
9: and I think it's awesome that laundromats are are still open for people because yeah. you know, there's a lot of essential workers out there who you know I'm thinking particularly of like the healthcare workers or the grocery store workers who are having to put in these extra long hours and laundry's a chore.
0: Mhm, for sure it is. That is absolutely true. Yeah, it's it's uh, one of those tasks that uh, some people really dislike. Um, I don't mind laundry. Laundry is okay for me. It's vacuuming that I I hate the most. But <laughs> everyone has their their preferences, I suppose. But uh, another good thing, I'm just reading here some of their their information. They have gift cards even available for Mother's Day, and their seniors discount is ten percent. Um, and you, I guess, their discount code for seniors is sixty, like six zero plus. P-L-U-S. And then there's also a 25% discount for medical staff and first responders. And that discount code is cov 19 medical thanks, all capital letters. So I think that's really a nice way to give back to the community.
9: Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, hmm. we're, we're talking about uh, giving support to the medical workers. Um, and this is just another fantastic way to do that because they're, they're putting in those hours and you know it's frankly a bit of a messy job things uh things don't get clean, so uh that's just fantastic that's a that's an awesome service.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So once again, that's Ask Laundry and Dry Cleaning Service. They wash, they fold, they deliver for you, which is pretty sweet. And then our other business of the day was Abe's in Byron. So thank you so much to both of those businesses for uh, letting us talk about you. And also thank you, thank you very, very much to the Ontario West Insurance Brokers for uh, presenting this segment. We very much appreciate your support. So there you have it. Those are our businesses of the day and we got through it, Matt.
9: We did, we did. Without I'm only, placing any
0: orders. <laughs>
9: yeah, I'm only marginally hungrier, you know, just, just a little, <laughs> just a little.
0: Okay, we'll hold on to this format and we'll make sure we do restaurants <laughs> first and then other business Second, oh my goodness, help us if we, we get two business uh, two restaurants in a row, but uh, we'll, say, we'll cross that bridge. Yeah, I'll just,
9: <laughs> the second you've said that, tomorrow we're getting two restaurants, guaranteed.
0: Yeah, probably. <laughs> but let's cross that bridge when we come to it. We'll deal with it then. Yeah. Uh, the other bridge we have to cross right now is into commercials to get to the five o'clock news update with Andrew Graham. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on this Thursday. Happy Friday Eve. I Didn't say that earlier. Usually I'm all over that. It is Thursday. Friday Eve. Love it. Even though the concept of time (laughs) and days of the week eh, is a little helter skelter right now. Like I said earlier this week, I'm here to keep you on track with what day it is. So you know, it's Thursday. I mean, I don't blame you for uh, getting a little confused potentially over what day of the week it actually is. I myself get that way sometimes in the morning. I'm like, what day is it? When did we talk about that story? Who did I have on yesterday on the show? Things start to blur a little bit because everything is so busy. And uh, sometimes you have a hard time keeping up with all of the developments. Today is no different. As we have said, it was a busy news day. I wanted to take just a couple of minutes to kind of recap some of the uh, things that went on earlier on this afternoon, early this morning even. So the province has expanded its priority COVID-19 testing and that was announced today, so now the priority testing has expanded to include essential workers residents and staff of homeless shelters and group homes, and people living with healthcare workers as well. So the new guidelines are supposed to help Ontario take full advantage of the testing capacity that it's built up and it'll help the province more effectively identify and contain cases among more vulnerable populations. So that's according to a spokesperson for Health Minister Christine Elliott today. Uh, Obviously, we've talked about how the Premier has expressed a lot of frustration that Ontario hasn't been processing uh, as many tests as it has capacity for. Um, That's been a a theme in the discussions that have happened over the last little while. Today, and we heard this, a little snippet of it from Dr. David Williams earlier on in the show during his news conference, uh, the province reported today, completing 9001 tests during the previous day. And that's surpassing a target that the health minister set last week after Premier Ford said his patients had uh, worn thin. He was asking some pretty pointed questions about why it was taking so long to ramp up the testing numbers. So these new guidelines say that people living and working in congregate settings, such as homeless shelters, correctional facilities, and group homes should be tested as soon as possible if they have symptoms. And those symptoms are now defined as fever, pneumonia, any new or worsening symptom like a cough or shortness of breath, sore throat, runny nose, sneezing, or nasal congestion, Hoarse voice, difficulty swallowing, new smell or taste disorders, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or abdominal pain. I feel like I'm on one of those commercials where they talk about uh, like a new prescription drug that's available on the market, and they have a long list of potential potential side effects. That's kind of how it feels right now. So, essential workers, cross border workers, and people living with healthcare workers, care providers, and first responders are now also supposed to be tested as soon as possible if they develop symptoms. And the guidelines also say that people who need to be in frequent contact with the health system, so that includes cancer patients, people who are having dialysis done, anyone who is pre or post transplant, as well as pregnant women, should be tested as soon as they develop symptoms. And as a note, testing asymptomatic people is still not recommended, except for newborns whose mothers have COVID-19. So there you go. So uh, anybody who does not have any symptoms, we're not just testing everybody. It's still you still have to have exhibited some symptoms of COVID nineteen before you get a test, essentially. But they are expanding the guidelines, as we have said, to include more people to be able to be tested sooner, faster, that sort of thing, which is good. And I, I know that it's it's difficult because there's a real people want to see action taken sooner, faster. There were questions during that briefing this afternoon for Dr. David Williams and like good questions to be asking because that's the whole point of these of these news conferences and to allow the media to ask these questions because it's what the public wants to know. And kudos to Dr. Williams for, you know, trying to handle those questions as best as possible and, and give answers um, that are, you know, understandable because there's a lot of medical terminology and uh, that, you know, most of us, Would have a difficult time parsing through, so he's trying to break it down into layman's terms and really understand, like give a a good, uh, comprehensive look of what they're uh, the what they're talking about essentially. And it's hard, you know. There was a question uh, about why they're waiting to implement new restrictions on how many places uh, long-term care workers uh, can actually be employed at. So it was announced i think it was yesterday like late in the afternoon the government is now saying no workers will be limited to one long term care home in an attempt to stop the spread of this uh virus from home to home to home makes perfect sense to do that they are giving until i believe it's the 22nd uh for that to take into to to kick into effect so the question was why not do that now why wait until the 22nd if we know the sooner we implement this the better it'll be. And Dr. Williams had a really good response. He said, well, essentially it takes time to enact these measures. And then also you can't just flip a switch and say, okay, only you're only working in one place now because- If you do that, there's a really big potential that care homes will be left without proper staffing and people to take care of the residents. So you have to give some time for contingency plans to be made and to find coverage and and the rest of it. So, as much as people want to act immediately, you, you can't. You have to. Take some time to make sure that the orders are in place. It's like New York City and New York State, I should say, uh, implementing the rules about wearing a face mask in public if you can't adhere to physical distancing. They gave people three days' grace, not the band, uh, but three days' grace to get some face coverings and masks because you can't start expecting people, like holding them to a standard that they're not going to be able to. You know reach it doesn't make sense. So of course everyone wants to see swift action but it's not always possible you have to you have to take some time take a beat, take a breath, make sure you do it right and not rush things. Uh, but certainly it's understandable. people want action now. This has uh, obviously been going on for quite some time and it's it's upsetting. Also on the local level, we got some new numbers from local health officials with the Middlesex on and Health Unit. They uh, have issued their update this morning, or actually, sorry, it's early this afternoon that they do their briefings now. Um, we had two new deaths and eight cases in London, Middlesex, uh, since yesterday. Uh, it brings the total number of cases confirmed in our region to 258 and the deaths to 14. Two cases were also marked as resolved, bringing that total to 120. Woohoo! And the Middlesex London Health Unit uh, has said that one death and three new cases were reported yesterday. So again, from yesterday to today, we learned that there were eight new cases and two deaths from yesterday to today. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the latest there. But every time I see those resolved figures, that makes me very happy. So two cases have been marked as resolved since yesterday. And there are 120 resolved cases in Middlesex London. Good stuff. Love to see it. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. When we come back, we're going to talk to someone who has some insight into why you might be having trouble sleeping right now. That's going to be an interesting discussion. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. This Thursday afternoon, I'm your host, Jess Brady. I'm glad you could be with us today on this Friday Eve, as I jokingly call it. How has your sleep been this week? Are you having a good time getting to sleep? Are you able to drift off easily? I don't know. Sometimes it's easier than others. It's not always the easiest especially in times like this, where there can be a lot on your mind. And, you know, your mind can play tricks on you. You're constantly going over things. It's, it's tricky. It's hard. I don't know about you, but I think that when I'm stressed and I have a lot on my mind, I don't really, I just, I stay up later, but it's, I, I don't think of it as, a response to what I'm stressed about. I think I just I'm anxious. So it's harder to unwind. And you know, feel like sleep is a good thing. It's tricky it's a hard, hard thing. I don't know if uh, some people have routines like bedtime routines. Uh, It's not just for little ones anymore, you can actually kind of train yourself sleep train, I guess where you just you know, some people like lavender uh, spritzes or candles or whatever. And they can, you know, apparently lavender is good for like relaxing you and and helping you get to sleep. I've even seen commercials for pillows that are infused with lavender as a way of uh, helping you to relax and uh, calm down. It's interesting. Not sure. For myself, once I am asleep, I have no problem. Generally speaking, it's very rare for me to have to, uh, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and not get back to sleep. I do sleep very soundly. Most of my friends know that uh, when I was working mornings, <laughs> it was very easy for me on a Friday to sleep 12 hours right into Saturday because during the week, I didn't sleep very well. I'm a naturally a night owl, and I like to stay up late. But, you know, it's it's tough when you're working mornings. Getting up around 3.30 to be at work not long oh. after. It's tough. It's difficult. This shift is a lot easier for sleep. I will say that. But, you know, I feel for parents who have their little ones uh, who... You know, are are getting up on their schedule times for school or whatever, uh, and they're still in their routines that way. There are just so many disruptions to our sleep patterns. It can be very difficult. So I don't, I'm, I, you know, I, I get it. I totally understand if people have a hard time, especially now because of all of the stress we're facing. There's a lot of, I would imagine, uh, you know, advice about making sure that you kind of log off before you go to sleep. So make sure you are turning off your phone or putting it on silent, not watching uh, maybe the latest news coverage on TV. Just take some time to relax and start to unwind a little bit. Tune out from the screens, just turn them off. And then that's supposed to help you to, uh, you know, center yourself and make sure that you are able to adequately calm down and, and get ready for sleep. Some people like to have a shower before bed as a way to soothe them. Others, you know, they just have their own, maybe they like to read in bed, you know, so are good options. But certainly it can be very difficult uh, when we have a lot of coverage of the doom and gloom out there because there's a lot of it. And I've said it before, I totally understand that people need a break from that. Honestly, like, so do I. I can't constantly consume it. Otherwise, you know, it becomes overwhelming. So I'm, again, I'm not surprised when people, uh, you know, say that they're kept awake a little bit more because of their worries, right? Regarding COVID-19 or other things. Because it impacts every aspect of our lives right now. So certainly people are worried about it. Unfortunately, we've not been able to connect with our guest for this segment, Dr. David Sampson. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga campus. And he looks at an evolutionary link between fear and insomnia and uh, has some some tips for getting a better night's sleep. Unfortunately, we won't be getting those tips right now, but hopefully we'll be able to connect with him uh, down the road. If not today, hopefully maybe tomorrow. And uh, you won't have to listen to my soliloquy on sleep. Perhaps it was boring enough to put you to sleep. Hey, there you go. Silver lining. If you've been struggling with insomnia, perhaps my uh, thoughts and ponderings on how stress keeps me awake sometimes would help you to just. Lull off into a uh, pre-dinner nap, anything's possible. We're going to take a break for our 5:30 news package that's coming up with Andrew Graham. When we come back, we're connecting with Marvin Post, the owner of Attic Books, to find out how they are helping people stay connected to literature and helping them get through this isolation time with some entertainment. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. How is your supply of reading material? Are you topped up? Do you have a lot at home right now in your personal isolation station? (laughs) Do you have a little library? Are you good? Or are you looking for some new reads? Need to freshen things up a little. Hmm? Well, just because you can't really go out and browse through bookstores right now, can at all, doesn't mean that you have to be without reading material No, Because Attic Books has you covered. They have some great options for making sure that you do not get bored and are not left without some reading material. Attic Books' owner, Marvin Post, is on the line right now. Marvin, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, join us this afternoon and talk about the options that you have for anyone who might be looking for some new reads.
5: Well, um, we have a uh, Book Lovers Care Package, uh, which is um, five books of any chosen genre um, that the staff picks out. and um, Or you can just phone and uh, get whatever books you want. Um, think you might want and we would be happy to look for them and then we can uh, either do um, no contact lo- local delivery for $5 or curbside pickup for free and Canada Post also is an option
0: that's awesome. I love that you have the ability to still uh, get these great pieces of literature to people here in the London area. I feel like these are the sorts of packages that just bring people so much joy and happiness. I'm one of those people who just loves to go and browse with books and I have I have to stop myself <laughs> from buying books that I, I shouldn't get because I have so many that I have to get through. Uh, but it's just, it's so much fun to buy uh, and to, to have an, a new new book with you and to just kind of get into because it gives people a chance to escape from what's going on in our lives currently and immerse themselves in in an entirely different world.
5: That's right. it, It is a form of escape from the realities of the current situation.
0: Absolutely. And I love that you're able to, uh, you know, kind of respond and adapt to this. It's great that you can do the uh, no contact curbside pickup and the home delivery that you mentioned for only $5 extra. And uh, Canada Post, uh, as you also mentioned, it's just a neat option for people. And I feel like it's a cool way of being able to even send something uh, to a loved one or friends or whatever, uh, just to be able to do that. And and it's a bit of a an adventure. It reminds me of um, sort of like grab bags that you'd be able to get. I'm I'm obviously dating myself here. Several years ago, when I was a teenager or even younger, if you went to a, a, like a like an Arden or something like that, and they would have mystery bags where you could pay like five dollars and, and get a bunch of things in one bag. This reminds me of that. But it's it's you know with books. That's that's a real treasure, a real gift.
5: Uh, we also include a, a greeting card from one of the Canadian card companies and uh, the staff is willing to inscribe it any which way you want in case you want to give it as a gift
0: that's lovely and with you know mother's day coming up and obviously uh, people have a number of occasions in their personal lives uh you know all the time it's just a nice way to be able to uh let people know that you're thinking about them and uh what better way than to uh, you know send somebody their favorite authors or uh, a new book in a different genre that they've uh, you know maybe never considered and it kind of leads them into a whole other world of discovery there there are endless possibilities.
5: There are. um, There's such a wide range of books available that um, there's something for everyone.
0: Absolutely. And so if anyone is interested in getting in touch with you there, Marvin, at Attic Books, uh, what should they do? How should they go about making sure that they they get into these great offers? Uh,
5: We have staff on between um, 10 and 4, just a few staff. And uh, phone call or email, so phone call is 519-432-7277, and email is orders at atticbooks.ca or info at atticbooks.ca.
0: Perfect. And I'll make sure that uh, we repeat that uh, before we end the segment. And uh, that's that's great. I mean, I, I love it that you're still able to be uh, still in the community, providing some some great material for people to enjoy. Even while we have to be isolated, it doesn't mean we have to be isolated from our books. That's for sure. That's true. Well, Marvin, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been great to chat with you about what's happening at Attic Books. Thank you so much.
5: All right. Thank you. And uh, stay safe.
0: We'll do you as well. And all the best to everyone there at the store. Thank you. Take care, Marvin. Bye-bye. That's Marvin Post, owner of Attic Books here in London. And again, I'll just uh, repeat some of that information that uh, gave us. You can call ahead at 519-432-7277 or send them an email at info. At atticbooks.ca, you can send them a book list and they can check out and see if they have it in stock. If they do, they can process everything over the phone and their store hours are Monday to Saturday, 10 to 4, as Marvin said, and the delivery methods that are available, no contact curbside, and that's free or you can have somebody drop them off to your home for $5 or Canada post. And that, uh, obviously that one varies. So you would have to talk to the folks over there at attic books to get, uh, exact details on how that would look. And I'm just looking at their website right now where it kind of lays out all of these packages. Um, it, it looks lovely. Certainly. I mean, I receiving books is, uh, such a, such a great present and uh, really for any time, especially right now. And uh, who doesn't enjoy getting a little gift package in the, in the mail, a care package can go wrong with that. Um, this book lovers care package and says, gift the readers in your life or yourself with a book lovers care package. Each package includes five books of your chosen genre, a card from one of the fabulous Canadian card companies we carry. You can inscribe it with a heartfelt message and uh, give the gift of books or you know what, you can keep that, uh, that card blank and use it at another time. They also have the snail mail care package, which is uh, $25, and it includes five cards, uh, a mix of selection or sentiments. And you can also uh, get a collection of unused vintage Canadian stamps. Oh, that's kind of cool for any collectors out there. And uh, yeah, so it's, there are a lot of options as uh, Marvin talked about and just really neat to be able to, you know, support local and uh, help everybody out as we work towards uh, getting through this isolation time. We need to take one final break for our traffic and weather check that's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980. It's that time of the program. my Almost one of my favorite times. Because we get to talk about some fun stuff. It's bright spots of the day. Very good. I have two. I don't know if producer Matt has any of his that he wants to share if he has any bright spots today, but we'll leave that open to him. Do you?
9: I think I could think of something that's uh that's bright and fun, but uh, we'll get to yours first, I think
0: okay i'll do I'll do one first and then we'll do one of yours and then my my last one is a little long because I'm gonna read a story and uh it, it's pretty funny. I think you'll enjoy it. But the first one I saw on Twitter earlier today, and I'm gonna describe it for you. <laughs> this is from uh, a tweet that I saw from Tom Podalek, Podalek Aviation. He is uh, uh, he's he's with CTV News in Toronto, a multimedia journalist, but he is super big into aviation and uh, he posts a lot of content about it online. And so he has this footage from someone that was posted and uh, it is a Piper PA-28 Cherokee and it landed safely this morning on Highway 40, just south of Quebec City's airport and it's video of the highway cars, actively driving on it. And you see this, this plane getting lower and lower and lower and lower until it lands on the highway in the middle of traffic with the vehicle still moving. It's like taxiing on the highway cars trying to get out of its way, but it landed so perfectly in traffic. So I I tweeted out and I joked that, um, this plane landing on a highway merges better with traffic than most cars, <laughs> and it's absolutely true. It's insane. It blew my mind. I could not believe it, and no injuries reported from this whole, whole ordeal. Uh, they think it was a, a suspected mechanical issue that caused this this uh, emergency landing on a highway. Like, that's wild. So it's kind of going viral right now. People are, are seeing it, reacting to it. So uh, I, I could not believe it. That was a shocking thing of the day that I saw.
9: Yeah, that's, uh, well, first off, it's concerning that the plane would <laughs> even have to pull an emergency landing. And then on a highway, my, why would people still keep going, though? Oh, like, yeah. If I see a plane come down in front of me on the 401, I'm guns to hit the brakes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah that's uh that would be a very frightening moment and i mean i guess obviously you're not expecting it but uh i i just you would think you would see something you would notice something plus the noise i mean driving on the highway is noisy anyway but a plane you're gonna hear it especially the closer it gets to you like come on
9: <laughs> yeah seriously
0: yeah, um, the footage is nuts. Like at the end, there are two vehicles that are still really close to this plane. And it, it, they're like moving around it, but it almost looks like they're annoyed by it. Like they're zipping around. It's like, guys, like hit the brakes. Don't be following so close to it. <laughs> oh, f-
9: <laughs> for sure. I've done my yeah. fair share of 401 driving. And I, I guarantee you there'd be a, there'd be someone on the 401. They'd see the plane pull down and they'd just go great. Now this, come on. <laughs>
0: <Like>. <laughs> yeah, this is not your normal uh, everyday traffic occurrence. This is uh, something else entirely. So it's I, I read somewhere that in the States, and I am I'm I'm, I would imagine that it would probably be a similar uh, system here in Canada, perhaps. There was probably someone listening to this and they're going to yell at the radio and they hear me say it. But uh, in the States, at least, it's m- sort of mandated or designed into their highway system that they have stretches of the roadway that stay absolutely straight uh, so that should an airplane have to make an emergency landing, they've got like sort of like a runway, I guess, so that it's not curved around and they're able to, to, to make their, make their landing and taxiing. So uh, that's what I've read anyway, that they have stretches of highway specifically designed like that every so often where they have a long straight shot of roadway. So I'm perhaps anyone listening out there, any aviation uh, uh, fans, are, are able to correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I've heard. It makes it makes good sense that you would have those kind of things built in. And yeah. uh, I'm a, I'm a feel real foolish if it's incorrect. <laughs> 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 that if someone just said that and I bought it, it's like oh, <laughs> 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 one of those urban legends or something. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that was my first bright spot of the day. That craziness. That a everyone is okay and safe after that incident, but just phenomenal work by the pilot uh yeah. and whoever was in that plane because whew, you brought that down there's like sully captain sully type of stuff you know that's yeah, amazing for sure yeah what do they call that uh threading the needle when it's it's something so precisely yeah. done like you that's, that's what needle. it reminds me of yeah 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 for sure so that's my first one do you have a, a bright spot have i given you enough time to think of one
9: i do actually this is Ooh. uh this one makes me really happy and i think it's gonna make a lot of people really happy um do you uh do you ever play with uh, lego as a kid, uh, Jess? Yeah, a little bit i lego was big in my family my, my dad graduated from university as an engineer so we always used lego and right uh some bright news out of lego from lego from their factory Ooh. in uh in denmark uh they have repurposed some of the machines at the lego factory to start producing plastic masks for healthcare workers
0: oh that's so great
9: it's Awesome. Uh, the factory is located in a place in Denmark called Billund, and uh, there, with the machinery they've been able to rework, they can make uh, over thirteen thousand plastic masks a day.
0: Wow, that's yeah. amazing.
9: That's fantastic.
0: Like, yeah, absolutely.
9: Th- th- they're a company that's like famous for you know creative designs and outside the box thinking and like clever engineering, and this is just a perfect example of what a really great company can do with some really clever thinkers. Uh, this is just fantastic.
0: Yeah, no, that's fan like great news. And it uh, just makes you, you know, like a brand even more and a company even more. Like, obviously, Lego has a lot of uh, sentimental uh, value to a lot of people because of using Lego so much in their childhood. And as they they get older, you know, it's still something mm-hmm. that people uh, use to create and model things with. Um, but yeah, no, that's great. Now. maybe maybe you know this will the masks snap together in a stack Um, no
9: it's it's interesting actually (laughs) they have some pictures of it um if you go to the uh i believe this is the lego uh instagram page they have some pictures of it and what it is is it's this um this thin kind of uh thin white plastic strip much like the arms of of typical eyeglasses okay and it's got these little ports on them that they take a thin plastic face shield and you do actually uh, snap them together onto the port. So some assembly <laughs> required. Um, I'm not sure if they're distributing them built or not, but they're, they're a very simple but really, really cool design.
0: That's awesome. And I hope that uh, no one steps on them because I'm sure it would hurt. Oh, yeah. Just oh, yeah. kidding. Sorry. Sorry. Actually, <laughs> speaking
9: of um, <laughs> the, the same article, even more bright news from Lego. They're donating over 500,000 Lego brick sets to children in need.
0: Oh, that's so nice.
9: So Lego's just, they're crushing it. They're, yeah, this is they're awesome. They're hitting it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Good for them. I love that. Again, another example of excellent corporate citizenship. Love it. It's uh it's great to see. That's an excellent bright spot. I'm glad that you brought that up.
9: I'm glad I found it. This is I just got a big smile on my face for this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect. And now I hope that my last bright spot uh will leave a smile as well it's it's certainly not as uh as as wholesome and lovely as the lego thing but i think it will make you laugh so this story i uh found on newsweek's website Mm -hmm. and it starts out it's it's based in maryland and it says one of the best things about staying home all day is arguably never needing to put pants on and it seems <laughs> some people have leaned into this added work from home benefit during coronavirus apparently though they've forgotten that their neighbors can still see them when they go to fetch their mail pantsless oh, no. police in maryland have warned some <laughs> residents of a town to clothe themselves before stepping outside and it appears to be an ongoing problem or maybe it's just another bit from the police department, but more on that in a moment. A Facebook post by the police department posted on Tuesday tells residents to get it together and fast quote, please remember to put pants on before leaving the house to check your mailbox. It begins. The department seems to have at least one particular person in mind too. You know who you are. The message concludes, this is your final warning. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not clear who exactly is the pantsless mail-fetcher, but people in the comments appear to have some ideas. The post has been shared upwards of 2,000 times, and even national comments have started. A top fan of the page, meaning someone who actively comments and follows the police department's Facebook activity, was the first to comment. One time. Why y'all gotta be like that? Wrote Dan Glass. (laughs) Another responded, I'll tell my husband. So sorry you had to see that, wrote Tara Cook Myers. This isn't the first time that this police department has had a corona-related problem. They've had 99, to be exact, according to an April 7th post. New police problem. With everybody wearing masks, we can't determine if you're trying to stop the spread or rob the store. That's the Facebook page. And it it joked and hashtag got ninety-nine problems, a Jay-Z reference there. Oh but God. uh yeah, hilarious. Yeah, please, just in general, make sure you're wearing pants when you go out yeah. or shorts or yeah. something. <laughs> well, and it,
9: it's really concerning how they have to address an entire town. Like <laughs> Is is just this one town a, a little bit more, yeah. a little bit more free in terms of the? <laughs>
0: I, I guess so. They're a little more liberal, perhaps with the uh, clothing and uh, what they wear. But uh, yeah, so just if you live in, I believe I, the pronunciation, I might get this wrong, but it's Tanny or Taney Town, T A N E yeah, Y T O W N. but it's true. in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So uh, remember, you know who you are. This is your final warning. <laughs> okay. So Maryland, I don't know what's going on there, but uh, please wear some pants for 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 the good of all of us. That goes for for Canada and London as well. Please wear pants when you go out or yeah, something covering like, up your up your stuff. <laughs> Make sure you got robe. pants.
9: Just you know, just yeah, just cover robe
0: up. is fine. Takes two robe seconds. Robe fashion is in. That's two seconds. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, we need to uh, wrap this one up and, uh, you know, say thank you so, so much to you, Matt, for all of your work on the program today. Thank you to all of our guests who were a part of the program. Thank you to Jacqueline Carbone, Jacqueline LaBelle, uh, Jake Jeffrey, Craig Needles, uh, Mike Stubbs, Devin Peacock, everybody, the entire 980 team. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Be well. Wash your hands.